This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Cian Wang, CFO of FastSpring in Santa Barbara, California. You are listening to the CFO Thought Leaders podcast with Jack Sweeney. This is episode 652. A couple years in, the business was still burning cash. The profit margin wasn't expanding at the rate we wanted to. And frankly, our path towards going public, which had been the goal for a number of years since before I was there, the path to going public seemed to be not getting any closer. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was just really take a, a deep dive, introspective look at what is going on in our business around you know, the unit economics and what about our channels and what about the, the resources we put on various functions, whether it be in sales or R&D or GNA, like what about it has created this sort of problem where we don't look as attractive as other companies that are uh, similar to us. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with Jeff Nichols, CFO of UJet, an up-and-coming player inside the market around contact centers, call support, customer service platforms. That's where UJet plays today, and that's where Jeff has opened his latest CFO chapter. Permit me to mention a few listener value moments uh, where you might find a few key takeaways. Uh, from today's podcast. Jeff began his industry career at Disney. So I'll point out, you'll want to hear what he has to say about being a finance professional, working alongside creative teams and creative uh, professionals. Interesting topic for us. Uh, Next, Jeff's finance strategic moment today. He takes us inside online job recruitment firm Glassdoor, where Jeff advanced upward from a senior FP&A professional into a interim CFO role. Now, you'll learn about the circumstances that led Glassdoor to begin telling its story to the investment community a little differently. And you'll learn how Jeff helped spearhead an effort to bring clarity to its business model by broadening the point of comparison with competing business rivals. Glassdoor wasn't LinkedIn. It wasn't recruitment site indeed. It was something quite different and it made its money differently. At the same time, the business had been struggling to focus on what was important. Well, the story that emerged help management finally focus on areas that had been undermining Glassdoor's performance. So we want to leave you with this thought. At CFO Thought Leader, this is what we love. We love insight into storytelling. Jeff Nichols and Glassdoor realized they had to reach a new altitude. They had to tell the story differently and they couldn't tell it the way the company's rivals were telling it. In the words of CFO Ross Tannenbaum of Avalara, featured on our last episode, storytelling helps people understand information better and enables them to make decisions faster. 
Our talk with Jeff Nichols begins after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt. Your need to evolve. Your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, visit us at Workday.com. We're speaking with Jeff Nichols, CFO of UJet. Jeff, welcome. Thanks, Jack. Good to be here. Yeah, Jeff, good to have you with us. As always, we're going to ask you to look back and share with us some of those experiences you had along the way to the CFO office. In particular, uh, those experiences you feel prepared you for the role you have today. What are those? Well, uh, it's hard to ignore the you know the very first step in my career, which was starting out in in typical fashion at uh, Big Four Audit. Uh, so I started out at one of the Big Four, KPMG, and spent a few years there. And really, very typical experience. It's a bit of a meat grinder. You learn a lot. Um, you're just thrust into a lot of different companies, and so it's a great it's a great opportunity to just be exposed to all things business. Where were you? What office were you in? Uh, I was in uh, Mountain View first, and then uh, actually I relocated to the Los Angeles office uh, about three years in. And were those largely tech clients? Up here it was, uh, up in the Bay Area it was. Uh, when I went to LA, we my main client actually became um, a large real estate investment trust. So, All right, so I'm aware of your next move, so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to not stop interrupting you and let you go on. Uh, yeah, so... You know, one of the other benefits of going into public accounting was realizing I didn't really want to be an auditor. Uh, and so uh, I quickly realized uh, that I would rather look at forward looking things. I'd rather be analytical and creative. And so a more logical path was to try and to get into finance, FP&A. And so uh, my next jump was really into uh, a large, um, a large company, Disney. And that afforded me my probably my favorite job I've ever had, which was actually getting into a studio. So getting into a digital animation studio, being close to the product, um, just being right on the ground floor with everyone. It was a smaller environment, very tactical. And every day, everything I did felt like it had an impact on the business. I could see it happen. And that just sort of just changed my whole perspective on what I wanted to do and, and my value and what I was capable of doing. And so um, that really set the tone for the types of companies I wanted to look at next and the types of roles I wanted to have and, and the things that I felt like I was really good at. Yeah. So, you know, um, what was it really that made it so impactful? And I don't doubt that it was, but that Disney experience is so unique. And I'm sure many of us are um, curious as to how, you know, Disney's organized. Maybe you could provide just a little more detail where finance fits into that world. Yeah, when I uh, um, I started out in the corporate accounting, corporate F&A function for their studio arm, um, Disney has three very large segments. Uh, you know, as you know, it's sort of the consumer products, studios, and uh, parks and, and cruises and things like that. So I was in the studio hub. 
Um, and it was, you know, lots of accounting and finance folks cranking away. Um, not necessarily the most interesting work uh, per se. So I actually spent a lot of times working directly on all the animation studios, um, really trying to understand their businesses, making sure they were able to hit their commitments to corporate and understand, you know, what was going well for them, what wasn't. Through that um, relationship I had with each of the business units, I was actually able to uh, join one of them, which was a studio uh, back up in the Bay Area. And that was probably the, my favorite job and the most interesting job I, I've had, frankly, just because um, being so close to production, you know, being there where you walk in the building and on your right is a, a wall full of all the creative work that you know, never gets seen um, before a movie comes out. And um, being able to work with producers and uh, visual effects artists and um, understanding the, the needs and complexities of the entertainment industry, which is a very unique and different um, industry than perhaps most other things that we're, we're used to either in tech or, or like. And so, yeah, the, you know, the challenge was is explaining financial concepts to non-financial people, explaining, um, you know, explaining that kind of financial stuff back up to corporate as well, because you're acting sort of as an intermediary between two, two groups, um, but also the opportunity to get to know uh, how a film gets made and get to understand and work with creative folks that are very, very close proximity. You feel like you're you're there actually part of that production. And um, that's a unique experience. Um, and so uh, I've always been looking for that at, at every job subsequent where I feel like I'm very close to what's actually, you know, I, I want to be part of the sausage making, if you will. And so that, that was kind of the first chance to do that. So I want to say uh, you got to understand better the creative sensitivities that comes sometimes when budget dollars aren't there to take a certain path and how to educate groups of, uh, you know, passionate people. Uh, and that's just such a, such an interesting experience and it's a skill set. I mean, you have to become a quite a diplomat one would imagine as well. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I'd say that prepared me pretty well because it's a pretty common thread, you know, at every job I've had since where, you know, whether you're working with engineers or marketing um, or any other function, you know, a lot of times you've got some financially savvy people, but they don't necessarily see the world from your eyes. Uh, and so you actually have to see the world from their eyes most of the time and have some empathy and understanding and really trying to, uh, you know, shepherd them towards the goal that you're trying to have to, to achieve. And so um, a lot of times it takes just patience and uh, drawing things out for them in a very explicit way. And, and also, you know, reminding folks a lot of time around, you know, financial stewardship, right? Like I've, I've been lucky that most people I've worked with over the years have, when you remind them of, of why you're challenging them or why you're asking them for what you're asking them, if you remind them of the financial stewardship of the company, people want the company to be successful. And when you ground it in that basic fact, they're, they usually come along really well. So we know that Disney is where you got your let's just say FP&A stripes, where do you climb into the ranks really though uh, of finance leaders? When does that happen? Where are you? Yeah, so uh, a couple of jobs later, I found myself working for uh, a CFO at a company called RPX. Uh, RPX was a um, IP clearinghouse type business, um, pretty novel idea. It grew really quickly, went public, and I joined uh, just on the backs of them going public. And so I walked in the door there um, 
uh, as a manager again, yet, you know, through just getting opportunities and the confidence of the CFO uh, ended up, you know, rising through the ranks, taking on a lot of other projects and kind of running the team there from an FP&A and an IR standpoint. And so that was really my first step into leadership and a lot more visibility at the executive level and the board level. And I actually ended up following that CFO to Glassdoor, which, which has probably been my longest stint and, and probably the most impactful leadership position I've had in my career. Now, was your CFO, was he, uh, did he enter the CFO office from day one or did he also have to ascend? And were there others who also followed? No, it was just uh, just he and I. Uh, yeah, he came over. He went over to Glassdoor as the CFO. Um, was there for a few years. Uh, I was his. I was his number two. And really, when we walked into Glassdoor, um, there was you know the company was growing really fast. Very great story, but really uh, you know typical startup fashion. Very rudimentary finance operations. And so um, he and I basically came in and and tried to set up. Um, all the things you need to set up basically when you first start out and having a real CFO in place. So is it Glassdoor that brings you back sort of to the Bay Area? Actually, I came up here when I worked, uh, when I originally started at Disney, that was down in Burbank. Um, that was really kind of in their corporate accounting function, corporate FP&A function. When I moved to that studio I referred to earlier, that studio was actually up here in the Bay Area. It was sort of like a sister studio to Pixar. And so Pixar's up in, up in Emeryville. And, we were not that far away. So that moved me back up to the Bay. And uh, since then, I've, I've just um, loved being in the environment, being back in tech. And, and it's just, there's so much activity here every day, every year with new companies and new ideas that it's, it's hard to want to go anywhere else. Well, we'll have a, a few more career-oriented questions for you during the mentoring round, Jeff. But right now, let's find out about UJet and the opportunity that's... Uh, uh, at UJet and what are the offerings are there? Yeah, so uh, UJet's a great company. Um, <laughs> admittedly, I've only been there for a few weeks, so I can't I can't claim that I'm an expert on it yet. But uh, um, I think at the at the crux of UJet is, is I think we can all agree that at one point or another we've been frustrated by poor customer service. Um, and UJet is probably the most exciting player that's entered the market in recent years. Um, the the market around contact center and, and call support and, and customer service platforms is pretty antiquated. Um, a lot of it is still on-prem for most of the largest organizations. Uh, and there's really only been in recent times this move towards cloud and, and more mobile orientation. And in simple terms, UJet's really the first and only cloud contact center platform that was designed specifically with the smartphone in mind. Um, we live in a smartphone dominated world. And so it's incredibly important to have that experience with the customer and the ability for companies to manage how they support those customers with that at the core of the, the tool. Um, unlike other service providers, uh, you know, we're able to sort of unify the brand experience and, the, and that interaction between the, the two parties. Um, and it creates a really rich and con more contextualized seamless experience. Uh, on top of that, it's probably the fastest to implement uh, and scale for really large organizations, and that's who we're, you know, that's who we're primarily going after. So uh, usually, I ask uh, a CFO, "Can you tell us about your arrival?" And uh, you know, you're you're rather uh, still a let's say a newbie there. Uh, so sometimes I'll ask it this way: Years from now, when you you look back at this chapter that you've just opened. What will set it apart from other chapters? It's an interesting question. I think that um, 
it is the first time sort of being the point man, if you will, the number one in the situation. So while I've had the ability in my prior career opportunities to pick up and, and either help someone along that path with the, my other CFOs or to take something that was already reasonably well functioning and to expand on that and, and hone it into a, a really well machine. This is the difference here is really coming in and being uh, the person solely responsible for kind of creating that environment, create, bringing the financial expertise and, and rigor to the, to the company and looking ahead and identifying risks that are unique to UJet as opposed to other environments where, or other co prior companies where, um, again, it was really a bit more established at that point. So I think for me, it's going to be, it's pushing my, uh, it's challenging me in different ways and it's pushing me in, in, in my skills and that I haven't perhaps been pushed before. Tell us a little bit about the business dynamics that you're trying to better measure and expose now. I mean, you arrive, you probably had some uh, financial statements that you've been looking at, uh, but do you have all the visibility into the organization you need? And if not, you know, what have you set out to, to discover in terms of the business dynamics that need to be measured more frequently that you want to know before? your second cup of coffee in the morning, whatever it might be. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, there, it, what I'm lucky to have is, is uh, there is a good core team uh, that's here. And so there is data really, readily available for me. Um, some of the stuff that I've been focused on looking at really has been getting in and understanding our margins. Um, gross margins incredibly important to most enterprise SaaS companies, but it's especially important to a company like UJet in the space where our profile is a bit different than you know, your traditional B2B enterprise SaaS company. Um, so really trying to understand our margins, understand the levers in there and how that will scale. Uh, likewise, we're, we're a hyper growth company and trying to um, evolve and hone a go to market machine that is still in its infancy. And so I'm looking, I'm spending a lot of time looking and understanding our deals, our pipeline, our sales process, um, what works, what doesn't, you know, why do our customers buy? Why don't they? Things like that. And so I'm trying to intake as much of that information as possible so I can be thinking ahead about how to uh, really support our growth. Well, that makes a lot of sense. But how did you do that? Did you uh, arrange to meet the sales vice president your first week? Uh, did you set up uh, more uh, regular meetings, weekly meetings with certain parts of the organization to get to know them and have them understand better what you're trying to uh, find out? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Meeting uh, meeting with our CRO um, weekly, first week for sure, and uh, immediately getting into Salesforce and, and getting an idea of what we had at, a, at the at the ready, you know, in terms of dashboards and reporting. Um, befriending sales ops is important, you know, sales operations and strategy. Uh, those folks are, are right at the forefront of being able to crank out the data that you need and, and give you visibility into the stuff that's, that's really important on the sales side. Um, and as I mentioned, we had, you know, I'm fortunate to have a, a solid basis of reporting and data already sort of on the finance side. So in terms of, you know, looking into margins and looking into our cost structure and how that works and how that will scale, um, we're still sort of in the refinement phase, but the data is all there. So it's a little bit of a mix of just getting my hands dirty, uh, but also 
you know, meeting with folks that kind of drive those costs and meeting with my finance team to to really understand the mechanics as best I can. Now, since you've been, uh, did you like the dashboard or what, did you think it needed to be con reconfigured differently or there were certain numbers that weren't visible enough or, you know, sort of outward facing enough, uh, anything like that? You know, at a, it's a very good high level quick glance dashboard. Um, I, I'm one is I'm a bit more detail oriented generally. So I usually like to you know dive in and a level down. Um, but again, you know, it's, it's in a tool, it's organized in a way that I can go ahead and do that. If I've got questions, um, the easiest thing to do, frankly, for me usually is, is to have, you know, someone on my team drop the data and, um, we can, and we manipulate it kind of how we see fit. So, um, sometimes it's a little bit easier to do. Now, given the size this company is, it would seem that you uh, could probably communicate rather effectively, but that's not always the case, meaning you want to alert the organization that certain numbers be indicating something negative or maybe something positive. And you as the CFO want to either pat someone on the back or say we're headed in the right direction here. Um, do you have that wherewithal today? Do you feel as if you can educate that organization if you needed to in terms of what uh, your read on the numbers are indicating? Starting to, for sure. There's uh, there's definitely a lot still left to do, but um, the, you know, some of the initial work we've done looking at margins, looking at, you know, your typical SaaS metrics like payback and CAC and stuff like that. Um, those are certainly helping to understand, you know, the health of the business or at least the, some of the structure that's been, we've put in place, um, really just getting a bearing on what that is today and what does that spell for the business right now? And so, um, I don't, I, I wouldn't claim that in the last few weeks, I've been able to sort of redirect anything massively, but, you know, being able to educate, certainly that's already started. So I know you just really stepped into the role. You've been there only a few months now, but can you tell us about the response to the pandemic and what you've observed and how, how you expect this business to respond? Sure. Sure. Uh, so, you know, if I go back to when the pandemic hit first, uh, I wasn't at UJet, but, um, the company, you know, was able to pivot like a lot of companies very quickly into full remote work. And, um, the great thing about its product is, is that it, it, it allows other companies to its customers to pivot very quickly into remote work, um, at, at very large scale. And so a uh, you know, they were able to do that and actually saw, have seen, um, growth throughout this entire period. And so, um, unlike, you know, when I was at Glassdoor, where the business, certainly the industry was in, was certainly hit a bit harder than, than where UJet um, has been able to perform over the last six months. Um, at the moment, you know, really what we're seeing is we're still seeing a lot of interest in the product. We're seeing, uh, customers utilizing that product, uh, very heavily, um, retention is, you know, great for us. I think that the, uh, the opportunity really is in the fact that, um, the customer service and the idea that, uh, that's a differentiating factor for a lot of companies as they're competing in, in, you know, the internet services and mobile services and things like that, that hasn't changed with COVID per se. Um, we have noticed, you know, I would say that like at Glassdoor, even, uh, companies are a little bit slower to make the business decisions. So a little bit slower to make buy decisions, especially when it's a, um, you know, a more material purchase, but outside of that, uh, we haven't really noticed anything that, um, 
is really concerning in terms of slowing or anything else for the company. I'm curious about your forecasting function and whether it's where it needs to be and whether you're going to do anything to augment it, whether there's new technologies involved or just maybe a, uh, a new FP&A uh, person, uh, whatever it might be. Is there anything you can share with us about how you are looking more into the future? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, I, I look at it in two ways. There's uh, very near-term forecasting, you know, focused on spend and burn and um, near-term uh, revenue forecasting and deal forecasting. That is actually pretty tight. Um, again, we I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have um, some some great FP&A work already in house. The longer term ability to project the company is definitely uh, something that I'm working on and I'm focused on uh, in in my first quarter or so here. Um, the company, as I mentioned, you know we are small, hyper growth, and usually what that means is that you don't have a lot of experience, frankly, uh, with sales productivity and um, deal predictability and things like that. And so uh, a lot of what you do is, is you end up trying to calculate things in multiple ways and try and triangulate a projection. And so what we're doing right now is, is we're, we're going through and we're sort of building and testing some new architecture around how to project the business in a more thoughtful way. Um, and frankly, you know, the predictability six, 12 months out, 24, 36 months out is, is very low for a company of our of our stage and size. And so, um, again, it's, I, I don't necessarily know that we'll be able to create anything that's going to have the ability to, you know, forecast things with a hyper degree of accuracy, but, um, certainly I think it'll be a lot easier to manage the business and a lot better to give us a bearing as to where we're going to be going. Um, I've used a lot of tools over the years at different, at different companies implemented most of them myself and, um, they're great for various reasons, but at the end of the day, uh, Excel, is actually the most facile thing that you can use. And um, we're mostly in Excel right now. And I think that at least in the near term, we're probably gonna continue that way. I probably should have asked this earlier, but I'm curious if um, uh, in terms of the capital structure, is this company, have you, uh, are you raising money? Will you be, or uh, maybe you can give us just an abbreviated history of its capital uh, structure. Yeah, so uh, earlier this year, um, prior to my arrival, UJET secured a $55 million Series C round, uh, which was led by Sapphire Ventures. And uh, the company has really you know, doubled its size in, in the last 12 months. And so, um, you know, we're always looking at options around raising capital. And uh, it's something on top of my mind. Um, as I, again, as we sort of build the architecture we need to look at the business on a long-term basis and really look at the opportunity and how quickly UJET can capture it and what our capital needs are going to be, that's going to dictate whether we go and raise money, um, you know, in the near future. But I would expect that we were, you know, that's going to be something that we're going to be looking at highly in the next 12 months. Jeff, we're at that uh, point in the podcast where I ask for a finance strategic moment. And we're look, you've had many of these during the course of your career, but we're looking for just one that you can sort of share a story about and how it occurred to you. You saw something in the numbers and you responded to it, whether the organization as a whole responded, your team, uh, or maybe it was just something the company avoided after you identified a risk of some kind, whatever it may be. What comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? 
Yeah, I think uh, the one that comes top of mind was really when I was at Glassdoor. Uh, you know, a couple years in uh, after being at Glassdoor, um, we, you know, the, the business was still burning cash. Um, it, it wasn't the profit margin wasn't expanding at the rate we wanted to. And um, frankly, the our path towards going public, which was, had been the goal for a number of years um, since before I was there, um, the path to going public seemed to be not getting any closer. And the business just didn't look as healthy as it could have. And so one of the things that we um, wanted to do was is just really take a, a deep dive, introspective look at you know, what is going on in our business around, you know, the unit economics and what about our channels and what about the, the resources we put on various functions, whether it be in sales or R&D or GNA, like what about it is, has created this sort of problem where we don't look as attractive as other companies that are uh, similar to us, you know? And one of the difficult things was is Glassdoor is a unique business. Um, there isn't, really isn't a, exact copy of what Glassdoor was it you know you could say oh it competes against LinkedIn or indeed um, or a few other companies that are traditional job boards but um, the way it sold the way it generated revenue was slightly different the types of customers it sold to was slightly different um, and that created a bit of a comparative problem and so we had to look at a lot of other places um, we looked at SaaS companies we looked at traditional ad tech companies we looked at job boards um, and we tried to create this uh, this really broad view um, and understand the competitive differences of each and understand what from each of those things actually aligned to what Glassdoor's business was and how did they look. And so we kind of laid this all out. Um, and and the reason I bring this up as my strategic moment is because I had to sort of drive this, this whole process. And um, we laid this all out and we're able to identify that the business was missing some things. We had been pushing really hard at um, direct selling. Um, we had a we had a relatively mature and large sales team focused on large enterprises, um, and it, that's a capital intensive business. And uh, what we were lacking was is we were lacking really strong retention. We didn't have a lot of, you know, most SaaS companies are focused on net dollar expansion or uh, gross dollar expansion, things like that. We didn't have great expansion and great retention um, over a really long haul. And so that was a weakness. So we, we weren't necessarily a banner enterprise B2B company. Um, and then we also hadn't really exploited the fact that there was a very large uh, SMB market. And um, although we had SMB focused sales, it also wasn't very efficient. The way that we were doing it and going to try to get that, uh, get that revenue and get those customers on board was difficult and again, labor intensive, cost intensive, et cetera. And so we kind of identified these two problems really from that exercise. And that allowed us to um, then sort of start generating a plan for, okay, well, how do we get the business to look a certain way and to perform a certain way in the long term that it's actually a really compelling story? And again, going back to, can we take this company public? At the same time through that process, we also you know, really wanted to have control of our destiny. Uh, we wanted to stop, uh, you know, the idea that we would have to go raise more capital. And so, you know, mitigating burn and, and cutting expenses in various ways um, required us to go through an extensive exercise of sort of restructuring our cost base. And so all of this really was a, a directional change for the company. And so 
we reprioritized, we made doing new investments that we hadn't made before, but at the same time also curtailed some other costs and tried to refocus what we were actually working on. And so that, uh, that was incredibly uh, huge for me from a learning perspective, but it was also one of those moments where I really felt like uh, I was able to bring something to the organization that um, it needed at the time. And it just needed that sort of like honest, objective look at here is what's going on in the business and here is how it compares to its peers. When we return, CFO Jeff Nichols enters the mentoring round. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Okay, we're entering the mentoring round with Jeff Nichols. Jeff, uh, you're, you've uh, stepped into a number of different leadership roles along the way. This one is a, is a CFO role, but as you look back uh, at Glassdoor, where in fact you, were, I think, were an acting CFO for a period of time, uh, if you could go back in time, what would you tell yourself? And again, we're looking for that that place in time where you had all this responsibility sort of fall on your shoulders for the first time. Uh, what would you go back and tell yourself? Probably not to be so nervous. Um, I definitely am. You know, I'm definitely someone who's risk adverse by nature. I think that's probably part and parcel of being a CFO. But, uh, you know, when, when the opportunity presented itself for me to step up and, and take over um, the CFO role for the first time, um, I was actually very hesitant. You know, and, and up until that point in my career, I'd always been very bullish around wanting more responsibility, wanting more visibility, uh, more earning potential, you know, all of the things that you ascribe to, to growth. Um, and, and um, just continual, continuing to challenge myself. And at that point, it was really the first time where I hesitated. And um, looking back on it now, I, I wish that I hadn't, frankly. And um, it, you know, eventually it, it worked out all for the best and I, I ended up taking over the function anyways. But there was definitely a period of time there where I could have been a lot more bullish and just um, had a lot more, I think, confidence in myself, frankly, that uh, I had enough experience and there was a great support system at the company. Um, the leadership team was amazing. The board was amazing. And really that, um, you know, everybody, everybody at the end of the day, uh, they're offering you the ability to do this because they believe in you and uh, they want you to be successful. And so I think if you, if I were to stop and, and say that to anybody who's sort of posed with an opportunity like this or a challenge, and they're perhaps unsure of themselves or they're worried about the risks, uh, you just got to take a leap sometimes and you got to know that that there's there's folks out there who have your best interest at heart and they're going to be your support system. We like to ask uh, our guests to reflect a little bit on the personal side. Tell us something about themselves, whether it's a habit that they have or a daily routine that they, they've carried out regularly that uh, they believe has helped them uh, 
sort of stay stay on an even keel uh, professionally. So it's sort of a personal something you do personally that has helped you perhaps on the professional side as well. Anything come to mind? Yeah, I mean, over the years, uh, I think one of my knacks has been the ability to you know develop really strong relationships with my partners and just anyone, frankly, in the organization. And so I think that comes from two behaviors. One, being vulnerable, um, just being honest and, and vulnerable with folks and, you know, not worrying so much about, um, you know, political conversation and return and stuff like that at work and really just being honest and letting people know how you feel and what you expect of them and things like that. Um, the other thing I'll say is, is that I'm maniacal about my inbox and Slack and I don't let anything go unaddressed every day. Um, I think the, what it does is it, it shows people that you're, you care what they need. You're very responsive to, um, it also allows me to sort of have a, a clean brain space when I, when I kind of sign off for the end of the day, when I start the day, I start off on, on, a, on a good foot every day. Um, and that just allows me to stay really organized and very on top of things. And, um, I think that it's, it's a great habit if you can manage it. Um, I know folks that I've worked with for years who are amazing and they have 10,000 items in their inbox and I simply could not uh, operate that day, that way every day. Would you have a book you'd like to recommend to our listeners? It doesn't have to be a, a business book, but uh, what would you, any books for us? Yeah, sure do. It actually uh, probably harkens back to my, to my uh, advice to myself was, uh, there's a book called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by Susan Jeffers. Um, not, not, a, not a finance book per se, but um, really, you know, I think it's a great book if anybody, um, you know, has fear, anxieties for different reasons. Um, and a lot of us who are, you know, up and coming leaders or new leaders, uh, it's a great book to read and to, you know, ground yourself in some good behaviors and, and ways of thinking about the world. And what, what was the author's name again? Susan Jeffers. Okay. Well, thank you. We haven't had that one uh, recommended before, so thank you for that. And we are up to our final question, uh, Jeff, where we ask you to look forward and share with us your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months. What comes to mind? Yeah, so uh, a little redundant of what I mentioned earlier. I'm focused heavily on uh, doing some long-term planning, uh, under really understanding our economics like our unit economics and, and profile. Um, so that's top of mind right now for the next couple of months. As I kind of pivot out of that, uh, you know, we were a January 31 company, so I'm wanting to have an operating plan um, that's really thoughtful and that the executive team and the company can rally behind and, and hit. And uh, and then, you know, beyond the scope of that, I would say that we've got, we've got you know, people, processes, and technology. And so uh, when I, it's, it, I've got to look at the entire finance stack and look at all of our processes like code to cash and look at whether or not we need a new RRP and all of these things. And so um, I expect we'll probably tackle a good chunk of that in the next 12 months as well. Jeff Nichols, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks for having me on, Jack. It was great to talk to you. Listeners, do us a favor 
Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.